I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to see the full-page ad that was taken out in yesterday's Chicago Tribune listing quotations from many of our nation's founders. What you will have read, and I encourage you to take it out of the recycling bin if that's where it's gone, is testimony in luminous quantity of the faith that burned in the hearts of our founding fathers, and not just the founders, but many who have served the nation uh, through the years. There was a time in American life when being a follower of Jesus Christ was regarded as one of the most important acts of service to our nation's best interests. There was a time in our nation's life when people clearly understood that to be a disciple of Jesus was one of the greatest assets in our nation's life. Our country's founders clearly believed that the system of limited government that they were framing depended upon for its success the capacity of American citizens to govern themselves. Limited government could work only if Americans could govern themselves according to the moral precepts of the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Christ. And this is what the founders uh, said about that. They understood that the genius of American life flowed from a sense of ultimate accountability before a holy God and a sense of stewardship that would also guide Americans. They understood they would stand one day before God and need to give an accounting. And this sensibility affected both rulers and citizens alike. Our founders were certainly not interested in establishing a state religion. They'd seen enough damage done by state religions and the nations from which they come. But they could not conceive of an America. They could not even imagine an America that could truly prosper without the leavening influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and without the biblical vision that informs everything from our work ethic to our concept of justice to our care of children and the elderly and even of people who have a different religious viewpoint than we do. And the founders of the nation clearly understood this. Today, however, That viewpoint is clearly on the wane. Maybe you saw the recent Newsweek cover article declaring the decline and fall of Christian America. The impetus for this particular issue was the release of the results of a major study showing a marked decline in identification with the faith that once formed the moral and spiritual consensus at the heart of American life. According to the research, the number of Americans who now claim no religious affiliation whatsoever has nearly doubled in the past 20 years, rising from 8 to 15% of our population. Conversely, the percentage of people who self-identify as followers of Jesus has declined 10% since 1990. An increasing number of Americans, some 30% of us, now describe ourselves as spiritual rather than as religious, presumably detaching faith from association with all the sins of the organized church. And a whopping two-thirds of Americans now say that religion is losing influence in our society. It must be said that it has been a lot worse than this for the Christian movement at moments in the past. And when it was like this, it became a time not for shouting or for deriding so much as 
for listening. When we open the storyline of the Bible today, it is shortly after the conclusion of the famous missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. The church has been planted now, sown throughout the entire Roman Empire. But a wave of terrible persecution is rising fast and it is threatening the nascent Christian movement with extinction. It is then that Jesus Christ himself chooses to speak, as recorded in the pages of the book of Revelation. And later on in this book, Christ will have very tough words to say to all of the people out there in the world who have forgotten or rebelled against their Creator. But in the very first few chapters of this book, it is to the people of the churches that Jesus speaks. It's as if He wants to make it absolutely clear that for the message... He has for the whole world to make any sense. You have to first understand what it is God says to his churches. What it is he asks of his churches. And he does this through a vision he gives to the apostle John, who is languishing in exile on the island of Patmos, just off of the coast of ancient Asia Minor, what we now call uh, Turkey. John recounts how one particular Sunday, one Lord's Day, the Scripture says, Jesus spoke to him with the clarion call of absolute authority, with the sound of the trumpet. And it told him to grab some paper and a pen and to prepare to take notes because what he was going to be told is very, very important. And then he was to take this message and get it out to the seven churches. And he, and he lists them. Jesus lists the seven churches. Now, the specific churches that Jesus names are listed in the order that the Roman mail service traveled on its way around the major cities of ancient Asia Minor. It's listed in exactly the order the mail carrier would have moved through those major cities. The book of Revelation was, in a sense, Gmail, where G does not stand for Google, but for something higher from someone higher. It was intended to be forwarded. It was mail intended to be circulated. Throughout the Bible, the number seven is a symbolic number. It signifies wholeness. And the fact that this revelation is addressed to seven churches, and and in fact, not even the leading churches in the world at that particular time, is a message in and of itself. This revelation is meant for the whole church. It's for every church trying to figure out what it means to live in an era of flagging faith and calamitous troubles. And great pressures. It is God mail being forward, even to you and me. The greatest function of these opening chapters, the most important purpose of these opening chapters, is to remind the churches of who is writing to them of who is speaking to them. In the Revelation, John is given the ability to see Jesus for who he fully is. He's given the capacity to see Jesus not as the good man, the wise man, the interesting man many conceive him to be, but as the infinitely greater being that Jesus truly is. John sees Christ robed in the 
gold of royalty in his vision. He sees him crowned with the snow white of purity. He sees him ablaze with the fire of holiness. He sees him thundering with the rushing waters of absolute power. I tell you, says John, his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. John cannot find the words to adequately describe the glory of the Jesus he meets. And so he likens him to the sun, the defining reality of life. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. The message of Revelation is that Jesus isn't simply a man in history. He is history. History is his story. And so when Jesus says later on, I am the first and the last, I am the alpha and the omega, I am the beginning and the end, he is saying in effect, I don't simply intersect the story of your life now and then. I am the storyline on which life moves. I am he. And the opening chapters of Revelation explode with fireworks of praise and prose seeking to describe the wonder and glory of who Jesus fully is. We find all kinds of titles ascribed to him, words of glory uh, given to them, each one of them a universe of rich symbolism and meaning. We could take hours just plumbing the meaning of each one of them. Every title given to Jesus points to one greater dimension of his glory. But it's to those who are closest to Jesus... They're, they're the ones that are most blown away by him, it seems. And in fact, the ones who are most familiar with him are the ones most in awe of him. In chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, John is given a glimpse into the very throne room of heaven. The, 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 the layer that separates the invisible realm from the physical realm in which we dwell is peeled back. And John is given a glimpse into the full reality of the spiritual plane. And he sees there beings of such magnificent power and beauty and glory in themselves that he would be privileged to spend all of eternity even polishing their toenails. And yet, these beings... These awesome, fearsome, glorious beings. They consider it their privilege. They feel compelled to lay down their crowns and to fall down in worship before the infinitely greater glory of the one who sits upon the throne. If you are looking for the primary reason why faith is flagging in America today, It is this. We have lost a picture, a clear picture, of who Jesus is. Of who he really is, fully is. I know that I myself lose sight of it at times. I start thinking of Jesus as a resource that I can plug in and out of when I want. Instead of as the source of everything. All the time. By whose will and grace I exist and cohere every nanosecond of my life. I come sometimes to transform the great lion of Judah into a house cat. Soft and purry. A comfortable companion existing 
to make me feel better when I'm a little down, to come brush up against me, Jesus, make me feel better, who never asks very much of me. This is why I need not just a personal spirituality. It's why I need a biblical church. It's why I still need a religion. It's why I still need a set of other people that help me to remember Even if it's an imperfect church, I need some place where I get called regularly to see not the God of my preferences, not the God of my party, not the God of my opinions, not the God of my projections, but where I am called to look into the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one dressed in glory. I need this. I need to see Jesus as he actually is. And I think that the more we see of him, the less our faith flags. I think sometimes that, that, that the revival of American life, as it has been revived at key moments in our past, comes only when we catch a fresh vision of him and then find our faith filled with fresh fire and fresh wind to go out and live for his power and glory and honor and praise. I hope that when you come to this place, you catch a vision of Jesus. I hope this morning you're leaving with a larger vision of who this Jesus truly is, the great Lord and head of the church. That's why I want to close this morning by reflecting on the specific counsel that Jesus gives to the churches. You see, the reversal of the spiritual decline in any nation's life does not begin by getting angry at all those people out there who have rejected God. The path to the spiritual renewal of a nation always begins in the heart of God's people with we who have been given a vision of him. Don't blame the people out there. They don't have a vision of him. Renewal will begin with those of us who have this vision and with how authentically we are being his witnesses. And so the consistent refrain of Jesus in all of these letters is, I know how that's going with you, church, my churches. I know your deeds. I know your afflictions. I know where you live. I know, I know, I know, I know, says Jesus. I know what is really going on with you in your heart. And there are some things that I want to commend, says our Lord. What does Jesus praise when he finds it in people? What is it that just brings joy to the heart of Christ when he sees it in you or he finds it in a church? The first attribute, I suppose, is no real surprise, is it? Jesus loves lovers. I know your love, he says to the church at Thyatira. In fact, he says, I know your love and faith because these things are conjoined in the Christian imagination. There is no real faith that is not filled with love. And there is no act of love that does not grow faith. I know your love, he says, to the church at Thyatira. And Christ makes it clear that people who really love God and who really love other people the way God loves people have no reason to fear the judgments that will be described later in the book of Revelation. God is always, in fact, God is only looking for people who will love him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and love their neighbor as themselves because his eternal kingdom is all about the life of love. 
Is this a mark of our lives? A love like Jesus for the Father, for His neighbor. Secondly, Christ commends perseverance. He cherishes people who don't flag in faith when people are attacking their faith. He values people who don't stop serving His kingdom when life gets hard, when the cost of doing so gets greater. A major thrust of the book of Revelation is this constant call of Christ. It's going to get harder, he says. But stay true to my name. Remember your calling. Repent of where you've gone soft on it. Get back in the game. Trust my long-term purposes. Persevere to the end of the race. Trust me, it'll be worth it. Thirdly, Christ prizes growth in faithfulness. Growth in fruitfulness. If you've picked up nothing else from our study of the biblical storyline so far, then you know God is always willing to work with imperfect people. In fact, God seems to have a genius for picking them, right? I mean, how many of the great heroes and exemplars of the Bible are people tragically flawed in one way or another, especially at the start when God finds them? God is always willing to meet people who are imperfect. But God expects growth. He loves us just as we are and too much to keep us the way we are. He expects growth in fruitfulness. If we're connected to him, if we're obeying Christ's word, there will be more fruit as time goes on. There will be more of the spirit in our lives today than five years ago. More love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control than there were than there was five years ago we're going to be handling conflict differently we're going to be handling money in a different manner than we did before we'll we'll be managing success or troubles differently than we did earlier in our journey and if you cannot see any difference in yourself if people cannot see any difference in you then it's time to check am i connected to jesus am i being obedient to jesus Finally, Christ commends discernment. In every age, there are people who come along claiming to be spiritual gurus. In every time, there are people who come along claiming to be apostles of Jesus, but whose gospel is not upon close study that of Jesus at all. They may gain big followings. They may have their books recommended by popular people. They may seem to offer the path to health or wealth or good feelings. Their numbers will increase in the last days. Jesus said, count on that. But my followers need to be discerning. They need to be very careful. They need to know my word well enough to know the difference between the, these, these, these fast-track approaches to spiritual health and the way of the cross. The way that I've modeled for you. They need to be very discerning so as not to get lost. Love. Perseverance. Growth in fruitfulness. And discernment. These are the attributes that Christ particularly commends in his followers. And the tougher it gets to be a Christian, the more others abandon the way, the more these are the attributes that we must be about in the last days of history. 
These are the traits of character I would suggest needed all across American life today. (laughs) How do we not need more love, more perseverance, more growth in character, more discernment in American life today as well? So which of these attributes are strongest in you right now? And which of these do you need to pray that Christ will increase in you? On a sobering note, there are also in these letters to the churches a list of attributes that Christ actively condemns rather than commands. First of all, Jesus sharply challenges those who have lost intimacy with him. The Ephesian church had apparently once walked incredibly closely with Christ. But then other priorities had taken over for them. They were in a cosmopolitan center. I suppose it was easy to get distracted. But they had forsaken their first love, their focus on Christ. And so Jesus says, please remember what you've lost. Repent and make our relationship, your connection with me, make it the highest priority of your life because everything else hinges on this relationship. Remember and repent. Return to your first love. Secondly, Jesus condemns the superficial discipleship that he finds in some of his churches. In words that are very reminiscent of his critique of the Pharisees in the Gospels, Jesus tags the Christians at Sardis for being all about looking reputable on the outside when their souls are dying on the inside. Wake up, Jesus says. Wake up. Strengthen what remains of your character before it completely dies. To the church at Laodicea, he issues a similar challenge. He says, your faith is totally tepid, he says. If your commitment was white hot, you'd be a blessing to me in the world. If it had gone totally cold, at least nobody would mistake you for one of my followers. And you wouldn't be giving my cause such a bad name by your lukewarm life. But you're lukewarm and you think it's fine. You don't seem to see that this kind of of superficial discipleship gets spit out by the world and by me, says Jesus. Finally, Jesus condemns the addiction to appetites he sees in some of his people. The churches at Pergamum and Thyatira were filled with people apparently obsessed with gratifying their physical urges. And it was leading them into idolatry and into sexual immorality, I presume adultery. They they thought of nothing but fulfilling the urge, gratifying the urge. What, you wonder, might that have to do with us today? Well, St. Augustine, the great 5th century bishop of North Africa, once observed that a nation should be defined as a multitude of rational beings in common agreement as to the objects of their love. Summarizing this insight, John Meacham, in the Newsweek article I mentioned earlier, observes that what we collectively love most is thus the central test of the social contract. Meacham goes on to say that what Americans seem to love most at this point is individual freedom and the fruits of the free market. The freedom to satisfy my urges 
the fruits of the free market? To consume what I can. Now, there's nothing wrong on the face of it, these things. But is this really true? Is our ability to freely exercise our urges in any way that we want or to gorge on all the stuff we can consume the best we can come up with as our social contract? As the definition of our nation? Are we content? Are you content? With the fact that America's most famous exports today are our 700-calorie burgers and the free-for-all lives of our celebrities. Is that something we're, we're pleased with? Whatever happened to liberty and justice for all? Whatever happened to the nation that defines success as using our freedoms and our material fruits in the service of the highest possible good? This appetite addiction that is all the rage today is certainly not the way of Christ. And I submit to you, it's not even the American way at its best. Many years ago, Jesus spoke to his churches. And he made very clear what they needed to be about in the last days of history. Jesus saw wonderful qualities in some of his followers. But overall, he saw his churches at high risk of being absorbed into the dominant culture of that day. Some of the churches to whom Jesus spoke apparently listened to him. They took the words of Christ's revelation to heart, just as the Apostle John had given the instruction to do. And though they were never perfect, these churches, our forebearers, these ancient Christians, set their eyes afresh on the banner of God's kingdom and dared believe it greater even than the flag of Rome, spreading out across the world. Their vision of the glorified Christ and their vision and sense of value of the life of the kingdom that flowed from that core vision. This vision and set of values brought about the revolution that we call Western civilization. One day, some of these disciples planted the flag of that faith upon the shores of this continent. The blessing that flowed from what God did through those founders, imperfect as they were, is our history. And some of us might say, it's not a bad story altogether, is it? Today, however, we stand at another crossroads, at another crucial decision point in history. There is much evidence to suggest that the faith that has brought us thus far is now flagging seriously. Or that for many, it's just waving in the wrong direction entirely. But Jesus Jesus has not stopped speaking to his churches. Remember the height from which you have fallen, Jesus says. Repent and do the things you did at first. If there is to be the national renewal that we all seek, it is going to begin as it always has begun within the humble, prayerful, repentant hearts of the people of God. So the question I want to ask you is this morning, where 
do you and I need to remember our calling more clearly? Where do we need to truly repent? Is there greater love that we need to start exhibiting? Have we fallen into defining love in a worldly way? Have we lost the standard of Jesus who forgave even his enemies, who reached across boundaries, who laid down his life for the sake of this love? Is it this kind of vision of love that we need to recover, that each of us needs in our life? Is it the discipline of perseverance through times of trial we need? Do we need to recapture the vision of the Lord who for the glory, the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame? Do we need to rededicate ourselves to running the good race, no matter how painful the pangs of exertion are in remaining faithful? Is it a commitment to pursue real growth in fruitfulness, to reorganize our priorities and our time and our investments of our life, to establish the disciplines necessary so that next year at this time, we're not the same people we were today. But bearing fruit in more abundant fashion, Is it the spirit of discernment you need? The ability to hear the voice of God calling out to you as it does every single day amidst the clamor of our time saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, come this way, this way, and follow me. The question is, which life do you want? Which life Do you want? Which flag will you march under? It's a very important question. It's a very important question. Because the storyline makes very clear that the way the churches choose, the God whose flag they serve, has power to transform not only our lives, but the place of our nation in the great spiritual struggle that is at the heart of the far greater story of God's redeeming love that is thankfully, and at least for now, still being told. May God bless to us this reflection upon His holy word. And to his name be all the glory and honor and praise forevermore. Amen.